Welcome to Public Theologians, where Christian theology animates leftist politics. I'm your host, Casey Hobbs. In our last episode, we talked with Dr. Christy Nabhan Warren about her book, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. This is part two of that conversation. We're going to get more into the specifics of the day-to-day life within these meatpacking plants, um, the hazards faced, um, updates from the time of Upton Sinclair in the turn of the 20th century, and questions of the ethics of the way hogs and cattle are raised today and processed. We're going to get into how this work has affected Dr. Navhan Warren, and this is a really important conversation, I think, especially for folks like me who struggle to deal with the ethics of our meat-eating habit and how that affects the world around us. So hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation as well. And a couple more plugs. We do have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Support us for as little as five bucks a month. Also, we would really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you do rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, you can get a one in five chance at winning a book for one of our amazing guests, past and future. And if you support us on Patreon, you can receive one of those books right up front. So all of your support, again, is super helpful, even just sharing this with a friend, reaching out to me at publictheologianspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I also have a Substack page, caseyhobbs.substack.com. It deals with questions of Christian leaders' views towards important subjects like immigration, war and peace medical coverage, all these things. So give me a follow on that as well. I'd really appreciate it. Now, part two of my conversation with Dr. Christy Nabhan Warren. Quickly on the, um, on the subject of Catholic, non-Catholic, and even Christian, non-Christian. Um, so there's a, a part that you talk about, um, particularly Jewish immigrants and Muslim immigrants, of which they're particularly Muslim Im- immigrants, obviously a, a vast number, um, basically everyone that's not from that um, American triangle. Um, so yeah, talk about how they dealt with, um, you know, the obviously there's they have very different views of, of pork and, um, and kind of a, a halal um, religious significance toward and um, view towards pork. So yeah, talk about um, how they dealt with that, with yeah. working in those conditions. That's a great question, Casey. So I, I'm going to start with Postville, the, the largest ice raid in recent U.S., history, which was 2008 in Postville, Iowa. There's been a wonderful book actually by one of my colleagues here, Dr. Bloom, Postville. So if you want a great book on that, it's been done and also a documentary. Postville, so it was a a kosher, a Jewish kosher processing plant. Um, And so I did not interview Jewish Americans for this project, but um, the, Postville is a fascinating community because you had Latino Catholics, 
uh, and St. After the raid, St. Bridget's Catholic Church was like basically the site for all the social justice and, you know, pushing back against the ICE raid and just like, and, and dealing with the fallout, right? And so the Postville raid and the fallout and the deportation of like 495, mostly Guatemalan and Mexicanos, um, really ripped this community, you know, and it's still, it's still recovering. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a processing plant again, I believe now it's called Agristar, but the community is, is still trying to rebound. But what you saw there were, uh, was a, a broadband coalition of Orthodox Jews, um, Catholics and Protestants in this little community, um, really trying to reach out to these families and children whose parents were deported. And so there's been some really great scholarship on this and mainly Dr. Bloom's book. Um, and so fast forward to, um, to today, to these um, meatpacking plants and settings. And so I mostly interviewed African refugees, um, Mexicans, some Guatemalans, um, some whites, but, but African-Americans did not account for a sizable number of folks I interviewed, which was interesting because in the earlier part of uh, when these plants first moved out to rural America, the folks who primarily worked on the line were white, were black Americans and white Americans. And there's a really good book on that called uh, Cutting Into the Meatpacking Line by Deborah Fink, which is a really good anthropology of like 19, 1970s and 80s meatpacking. Today on the line, it's mostly, when you say black workers, it's mostly African refugees, mm. brown, Latinos, Burmese, there's a sizable Burmese mm. population in Columbus Junction. And at the non-pork plant in Iowa Premium Beef, you have Sudanese Muslims. And so I do have a little section in um, one of the chapters, I'm actually forgetting right now which chapter was right. on Iowa Premium Beef, where it was really astounding to me when I was trying to get across how religion is lived and could be lived in, you know, bloody grease ridden places for, because no matter how hard they try to keep these places clean, they're still greasy. Right. And so in the locker room, everything is, is covered in a coating of feet of, of grease. Mm. Um, there's a soap that's called quat. That's like in a huge bin. It's like a powdered soap. It kind of smells like Tide. Um, where um, the janitors would constantly be sprinkling it on the floors mm. in the locker room, um, not in, not in places where the processing was, but where folks would go to change just to, to kind of freshen the smell, but also to absorb the grease and the blood that was brought in so that folks wouldn't slip and hurt themselves. And as I was getting a tour of the locker room, and noticing how this poor janitor was just trying to, you know, clean the grease and when what looked like one of those like... Um, arm and hammer, those like white sponges that are supposed to like clean everything. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. um, I looked over to my left and I saw um, in a corner, like a small corner, it was like a, like a shower curtain part partitioning off an area with a shower curtain. And um, there were prayer rugs that were hanging over uh, and that were rolled up in a, in a neat corner. And I saw several um, Muslim women at the sinks performing their ablutions washing their faces and hands and murmuring soft prayers and then going and unrolling their rugs. And I was trying, I didn't want to, I mean, it would have been rude if I would have, sure. you know, intervened and talked to them. In. So this yeah. Was a, yeah. This is a pure observation part. I wasn't participating mm -hmm. and talking to them at all. I, I wasn't able to, but I saw, you know, that, you know, this was their call to prayer during the mm -hmm. shift. 
And, um, and so I talked with the human resources manager about this and she said, yeah, she's like, we, we don't want to privilege any one faith. We have a growing number of Muslim workers. We have a lot of Christian workers, but the Muslim workers, if there's a call to prayer during their shift, all they have to do is clear it with their, with their line manager, their shift manager, and they can go have a call to prayer for their 15 minutes or whatever. And so there was an openness to, to this. Um, and at Tyson, Tyson was a more sort of Christian space in the mm-hmm. sense that um, when it was a hog processing plant, so you wouldn't find Muslim workers there. Right. You found the African refugee workers there were mostly Congolese. Um, and most of them are Christians. Many of them are like evangelical Christians, Pentecostals and Jehovah's Witnesses. So um, a lot of religious diversity and just incredible amount of linguistic diversity in these places. Sure, sure. Yeah, so you've mentioned it a couple times, and again, that's that's a large theme in the book of the very evangelical, particularly, which is my background. Um, so the very evangelical speech and um, kind of state of values of um, these corporations, and especially at the top, and you mentioned the faith at work movement um, several times. So tell us about the faith at work movement. I know there's a really great book that you referenced um, that I, that I want to snowball. There's a lot of great books. Oh my gosh. I'm going to look at my, I'm looking, I'm looking at my bookshelf, which is like right behind Uh, me. Um, Okay. God at work is one. uh, Um, Okay. My call, my sociology colleague, Elaine Eklund, she and her uh, colleagues have a whole think tank at Rice University Hmm. called the Faith at Work Initiative. And um, so they're doing some really exciting work where they're, you know, they're doing like more quantitative meta stuff. Right. Hmm. And so I'm, I've long been fascinated um, with like the language, you know, in my classrooms, one of the units in my religions in America today is we look at faith at work and like, Hmm. you know, how is this appropriate? Is it appropriate for people? What are the limits of this? And, and students get really engaged in this, you know? And so I've long been interested in this because if we think about it, right, Casey, like most of us spend the vast majority of our waking hours at work, Mm -hmm. not, not at churches, temples, um, you know, synagogues, right. Those, those spaces, um, you know, occupy much smaller parts of the average Americans time. And so, I'm excited that there are more, um, more books and more scholarship coming out about faith at work. And a lot mm-hmm. of the scholars are, are sociologists. Um, Nicole Kirk, who, who is a, a friend and colleague, she has a really great book, Wanamaker's Temple, who's looking at, um, in a way, what I tried to, what I, I was sort of modeling, what I was trying to do after what Nicole's doing in her book, she was looking at a department store uh, turn of the century and, you know, in the urban North and how a particular man's vision of the world um, trickled down into how he ran his company. And so I try to, I try to also sort of borrow from Nicole's method when I'm looking at um, Tyson and IPB. So they don't call their workers workers. They call them family. Mm. They, they, they're intentional in using language family and the language of stewardship. We want to be good stewards. You know, we want to show, you know, they were careful. Sometimes they would say, yes, you know, I want to, you know, put my faith at work, but they were careful in how they did it. Mm. But I've, I've studied in, uh, enough American evangelical Christianity, sort of the history and 
one of the things that we do as ethnographers is we code interviews and we find themes and threads. And that was such a big thread, the language of stewardship. Stewardship, not only over the animals and their bodies, but stewards over the workers, Mm. family and their bodies, which is a bit problematic, right? And one of the arguments that I make that, you know, after reading the book is that for all of the talk, the high talk about, you know, be, you know, sharing faith at work and being good stewards, when it comes down to it, these workers like the animals, right, are fungible commodities. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I'm trying to, sh- again, it's both. And like, I want to take these folks at their word, I'm not saying they're bad people, but I'm saying, well, this is the underbelly of it. Like no pun intended. Right. I mean, right. this is what you get. I mean, these workers in the end are fungible commodities. You know, they know the corporation knows that if this person gets sick or injured, that there's somebody else who's recently coming over who needs a job and who will take their place. And that's what it comes down to. And because we don't have unionization and those protections that I quite honestly hope we end up seeing in this state. um, Yeah, we're we're gonna continue to see workers treated as fungible commodities, like the very animals that they're part of the slaughtering process. Yeah, and you, you bring, you bring that together as well in um in a little a little um section that i want to i want to read if that's okay um it's and it's right kind of right next to one of the main places where you're talking about the um how the faith and work um ideas come come out um in those types and plants in particular um, but you also mentioned that it's an Iopyramid beef. So you say, talk about family values. You can say family values do not include the cries of the swine and cattle before they're killed or the cutting and packaging of raw meat. And the refugees know this. While creating a faith-filled workplace that mimics church and organized religion may work for Chick-fil-A where cooked animals are served on buns with pickles and mayo, it ultimately does not work at corporations like Tyson that deals with living animals. So particularly as a vegetarian. And this is what I kind of referred to at the beginning. There's essentially for me, and I'll just put this, put myself out there in this. Anytime I hear any argument for stopping uh, meat processing as we know it, and, and, um, and really whether it's an environmental impact or whether it's an ethical impact for the animal's sake, it's, it seems like it's an unassailable argument. And then you think about the conditions that it takes to produce the quantities of meat that we're used to, to having and particularly in America, but obvious, uh, obviously in the, the world um, as a whole, but as usual, we're the main consumers uh, here. So yeah, talk about, and it, Give us a case for for yourself or from what what you what you experienced, um, kind of for the ethics of of this whole situation that you're talking about with meatpacking. Uh, that's I'm really glad you asked. I've had the opportunity to write. Um, so there's a book that's coming out that's going to be coming out that I ha- I'll have a chapter in on existentialist anthropology, sort of a fetch script to one of my mentors, Michael Jackson, who's a um, anthropologist at uh, Harvard now. And that's where I really get into sort of the, the existential 
issues of how I saw myself as an, as an ethnographer mm. and my relationality to the animals and the workers. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the, like the, the vegetarian side of me, as much as I would love for everyone to give up meat for the environment and for their health, I know that that's not going to happen. And like I said, my, my, my kids like mm -hmm. meat and we cook it. We try to not have it more once more than once a week. We try to do it in moderation and I try to buy the better quality meat. A lot of my friends order meat, um, like half a cow from like an Amish. I don't think we're going to quite ever buy that much, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, a lot of, a lot of folks I know do that. Like they'll go in on a cow from an Amish farmer sure. in Kelowna, you know, which is 20 minutes away. So yeah, I really wrestle with this Casey because I think, I don't think it's, it's, it's reasonable or, you know, I don't know. I, I think people are always going to want to eat meat. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there's, there's a movement like for cricket flour and for bugs. And I've actually tried when I lived in Mexico for a while, I tried mm -hmm. chapulines, I tried grasshoppers and actually they're pretty good with lime and salt. I would probably eat those if push came to shove, right. you know, <laughs> but I mean, I think if I think about it, I mean, you know, these, these corporations turn such a huge profit, right. And their corporations are harming the environment. And I go through this in the chapters. I mean, what goes into the air, mm -hmm. what goes into the ground, um, the amount of fecal matter that comes from these pigs, you could smell it in Iowa, in Iowa city. We know, in fact, last night we were driving around and it smelled like shit. And mm -hmm. we thought, Oh, it must be the time when farmers are spraying the extra pig shit onto the field, you know, cause we're close enough to these farms. And so what I think a lot about is, okay, what about just having smaller scale? Like I have premium beef is this, I wanted to have two different examples in the mm -hmm. book, one larger. Um, so 10,000 pigs a day, hogs at Tyson Columbus junction, um, you know, 5,000 steer a day at IPB, which is mm -hmm. considered small in the industry. You know, <laughs> I wanted to have some comparison, right? I know, which is crazy. To Staggering. Think yeah. And so I, I personally would love to see like smaller scale, um, animals having a better existence, not having to live in a CAFO. I think CAFOs are cruel, horrible places. Mm -hmm. you no, know, these animals cannot turn around. They get sores. Um, they're obese, you know, they're just breeding machines. It's mm. just such a cruel and humane way to live. And I just want to cry thinking about it. And I know, you know, and like the egg laying factories, um, one day my husband and I were driving around again, trying to find other pictures mm. and the smell was horrific mm. from the chicken poop, right? This isn't natural. This isn't normal for animals to be producing so much and what their bodies go through, uh, you know, um, and, and what tipped us off that this was an egg candling facility An egg laying facility was the feathers that were floating outside. Mm. And there were armed, I kid you not, there were electric fences around and armed or armored vehicles, like, like wow. you see, you know, carrying money. So these are like, this is like high security Humvee kind of thing, right? Something that's in like a dystopian novel. Mm. So I think that, okay, if we're maybe go smaller scale, free range, pay the workers more, pay the farmers more, pay the producers more and pay the processors more. Because what we also see that I don't get into 
so deeply, but we see a caste system that's emerged. We see mm. producers, mostly white, who raise the animals, who literally put them on the trucks and say goodbye to them. And then we have the processors who are mostly brown and black people, migrants, mm-hmm. refugees, who are doing the killing work and who aren't making enough money, right? They make a lot in terms of like sure. jobs in Iowa, but you know, they're not unionized again. Mm-hmm. So I think a better life for the people who are part of the industry, a better life for the animals. And do we really need 20,000 hogs a day in one plant in Indiana or in one plant in Iowa? I mean, I think we nearly need to think, you know, and as for as much as these plants say that they're cleaning up, they're not, you know, they're still pumping waste into waterways. The waterways in Iowa are horrific. And we know this because we kayak. Mm. Um, one time we kayaked in the Des Moines river and we all got skin rashes. I mean, the, the waste from the fertilizer and from the waste going in, you literally feel it on your bodies. And so everyone says, if you're going to kayak in Iowa, you got to go really far North. You can't mm. go below a certain, below a certain point. So, you know, I think the smaller scale pay people better, invest in like, I mean, what Iowa premium beef does do is they have invested a lot of money to clean the water. And I, and I was impressed and they've gotten awards for, for the process. And I think even plants like IPB can do more, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 That's great. Um, great. Um, food for thought again, not, uh, no, <laughs> Literally. No, no dad pun intended there, but no, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> um, but I will say, you know, Casey, I mean, for people think I'm this whole area, not I mean, I love small bacon. I right. I've come close. I mean, I have come close, but I mm. haven't, you know, in breaking my vegetarianness, but I mean, I just think if we're going to eat meat, let's do it more mindfully and yeah. let's, you know, just smaller scale. Cause we're ruining our planet. Mm. You know, we're yeah. ruining it. And, um, we don't need to eat so much meat. You know, we can eat pea protein. We can eat crickets. We can eat grasshoppers, you know, if, if you want to eat meat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, um, um, again, my, my only counter argument honestly is bacon. <laughs> I know. Bacon is delicious. It so great. It, I know. The only ethical, like, that's not really an ethical <laughs> counterpoint. I know. And it's a food group here in Iowa. Bacon yeah. is a food group. It really is. They even put it on salads here. You know, I yeah. can't even get a salad, you know? Yeah. Know. That's same in, same in, uh, Birmingham. It's mainly pulled oh. pork, but yeah. Oh yeah. Pulled pork and or yes. bacon sometimes Absolutely. both. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, associate the late sociologist, Wade Clark Roof had a great piece on barbecue and Southern culture called mm. blood in the barbecue. It was a great piece about the centrality of barbecue to Southern culture. I would say mm. pork and bacon, it's very similar to like Iowa culture. Yeah. yeah. It's like part of the warp and weft of the, of the culture here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So kind of wrapping up, I've got maybe one more question and then I'll, sure. I'll, I want to press you to see how this, how, or if Maybe I've got two more questions. Sorry, I got two more questions. Oh, okay. nice. <laughs> I'm having a hard time counting all the way to two. And then I want to hear about how how this is this work has has affected you. Um, okay, so we talk about obviously immigration, migration, um, legal status uh, has a lot to do with with your writing, and you talk about you. I mean going back to the 2008 um, 
immigration deportations. Uh, I I remember that because I was working in a restaurant and we had quite a few undocumented uh, workers and just the fear of um, of that potential coming because it was a corporate restaurant and and definitely not legal uh, practices from <laughs> the restaurant itself. But yeah, the people that paid uh, and that, that lived in that fear were, yeah, folks that had raised families in Birmingham um, and that had been a vital part of the, of the workforce there. And so I'm, I'm curious because that was 2008, that was under Bush, if I'm, if I'm again doing my math right, which is not a guarantee, but then you have Ob- Obama really scales up deportations and you, for um, Latino communities, he's, he's known as the deporter in chief. And, um, yeah. and for all of Trump's bombast and, and horrifying statements um, and the, the no tolerance policies, you do see a dip in deportations and then you get back to Biden and kind of this. So I'm, I'm curious from the immigration standpoint, if you, even the folks you talk to, what are kind of, is there more attitudes of hope coming into a new administration? Um, And then, yeah, we've talked a lot about neoliberal decisions and the destruction um, that they've, cause for particularly for the folks in in your your book so yeah yeah that's a great that's a really good question um i would say um in follow-up interviews and conversations i've had with folks since the book come out um there's been hope with biden but also somewhat of a disappointment because Mm -hmm. of how he has handled folks on the border and sending folks home. And also, even though he's Catholic, most mm. Latino Catholics are pretty pro-life. And that's what's really interesting, right? They've got the social justice part mm-hmm. and the pro-immigration, right? But pro-life in the sense of pro-fetus, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're not driving with this pro-choice platform, right? White liberal Catholics in the state and in my home city now, Iowa City, are much more on board with Biden, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that it's sort of for me a wait and see, right? I had written a piece recently for the Georgetown Forum where I I was pretty hopeful about Biden. I have to mm-hmm. say, I, 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 I feel like I was maybe a little too optimistic in that piece mm-hmm. because I, I was writing about Biden and based on my conversations with folks in these communities where I've done work and continue to do work, that he would really be more of a social justice liberation theology to return mm. to our earlier part of our conversation and really be into accompanying uh, the, you know, the ethic of accompaniment, uh, welcoming the stranger, right? Not seeing the stranger as a stranger, which is like deeply biblical and like part of the Beatitudes in the New Testament. And so I, I, I think the jury is still out on whether or not Biden is really walking that if he's really open to that accompaniment and I think, again, his, his I mean, personally, I, I am personally pro-choice just to put it out there, mm-hmm. but most of my interlocutors, my Catholic interlocutors are pro-life. And, and so they, they're not jiving with that part of Biden. They very much did not like that about Hillary Clinton. I think her, her strong pro, pro-choice stance really hurt her mm-hmm. in the state, in rural America. 
And so I think I'm holding out hope that he, that he will um, champion the poor and, you know, liberation theology is all, all, all about preferential option for the poor. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that recent decisions he's made on the borderlands have, has really muddied the waters a bit in terms of whether he really is. So I, I have personally been somewhat disappointed and if I were to go back and edit that earlier piece that I wrote, <laughs> sure. I felt like a Pollyanna. Yeah. So retractions, so retractions. I know. Yeah. I mean, one of my tattoos is optimism is true moral courage. So I'm a deeply <laughs> optimistic human, you know, yeah. and I, I have like full disclosure, you know, and I, I enter into my work, you know, as a curious person wanting to learn and I'm always hopeful, mm-hmm. but I have to say that, um, I think the jury is still out um, with with this new administration. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, and I'm, um, yeah, I always enjoy getting, getting authors opinions on, yeah, yeah. on these kind of continuing <laughs> developments. And I think it's again, like going back to the spirit that you wrote this book being even handed. And, you know, I think you, you lose your moral standing just, trashing Trump and not having, you know, a, a word to say about folks that are less grotesque and perhaps doing the same grotesque things. Um, yeah. So kind of, kind of on that point, I guess. So maybe I had one question spread out. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm good at math, uh, but <laughs> I'm not. So <laughs> <laughs> I can, well, who knows? Yeah. Jury's out on that too. So you talk about, uh, at the very end, you talk about um, a, a friend of yours talking about white evangelicals in the Trump administration. And you quote yeah. and you say, and he says, I really don't understand white evangelicals. They're telling refugees, meatpacking workers, that their lives are not valuable. The fact that these evangelicals believe and say that Trump is godsend and pro-life reminds me of the Sadducees in Jesus' time. As long as they were close to power, they're happy. They enjoy power and special privileges and they have sold out. Yes. Yes. And I, I didn't want to name this person because he, this couldn't, wouldn't, yeah, he did not want to go on record of sure. being named. Yeah. And this is someone who works um, for Tyson and I uh, was really conflicted about his job. You know, he, as an immigrant himself provides for his family, but he's working for a company um, that really discuss him on one level and that he sees making concessions to the former administration and to Trump. Mm-hmm. And he sees these kickbacks that, you know, Tyson executives have gotten, you know, and, you know, and all the packs that they're involved in. Um, and I think that one of the things that this particular interlocutor and others pointed out about the hypocrisy of much of white evangelical Christianity is that evangelicals and conservative evangelical Christians have long embraced personal responsibility. And that has been really troubling to a lot of my interlocutors like, well, you know, then why are they so anti-refugee? Because these refugees are taking such incredible personal responsibility. They're getting jobs. They don't want to be on government support. They want to um, work. You know, they want to pay taxes. They want to, um, if possible, become citizens, you know? And so it's a curious thing to um, this interlocutor in particular, where he's just like, I don't understand, um, you know, what they mean. And so he thinks 
yeah, he thinks they've sold out. He doesn't think they're truly Christian, you know, that, that it's just a political tool, that it's just a veneer for um, white racism and for wanting power. And um, I think whereas this into this particular individual would have seen alliances, would have been able to see connections. He's just like, I just don't know how to connect anymore because I don't understand this religion. This is a religion of Trump and this is a religion of white power and privilege. And that's not Christianity to me. And so when he says, uh, this particular individual says they've sold out, he's like, this isn't religion anymore. This is something else. Mm. So, yeah, and I, I, and I heard that um, from several interlocutors who are just really, you know, really sad, you know, by, you know, by just this line being drawn, you know, yeah. and, and they don't think that they'll ever be seen as completely human by these individuals, you know, and yeah. so if I'm good enough to package your meat, you're going to eat the food I make, but not good enough to give a raise to or to give me a seat at the table right yeah, yeah I, th- I think that was really prophetic I mean do you sort of feel really um again and, and doing you know conducting interviews with so many deeply religious individuals who know their bible inside and out like, mm-hmm. way more than I do I mean I am right. not a bible scholar <laughs> and I, that, you know, full disclosure you know I work with people who for whom the bible is a guide, you know, a signpost and a guide to how they are they going to live their lives. You know, they're like the, uh, you know, these folks are saying, you know, they're apparently reading the same Bible, but I, I don't know what they're reading because I am not reading that in my Bible. So there's a sadness there. I mean, there's hope in the book, but there's a sadness there too. Like there are certain people who they just can't talk to anymore because they're Mm. just, so there's a profound disconnect as much as I try to show connections, there are also some profound disconnections, you know, and I thought it was important to include voices like this particular interlocutor. I want this to seem like cupcakes and roses, you know, I mean, right, like, right. <laughs> no, and, and this is the jury's still out on how Biden's going to be perceived by um, these communities I've worked in. Is he going to um, hold these corporations accountable in ways mm-hmm. that Trump didn't? Is he going to tr- support unions and workers' rights um, in ways that, that Trump and even um, Obama didn't, right? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want anyone to be let off the hook here. You know? Yeah, so, and yeah, yeah, I think it particularly, again, like Biden's Catholicism and Biden's promises to strengthen unions and the old Union Joe kind of um, right. thing is, yeah, well, great. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's see it. Right. You got let's see it. three and, and a half more years like to- urban north. right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so yeah, I want to only hear too about how this, this book affected you. And, um, I was, I don't think, unless I missed it in the book, I don't, I didn't see that, um, you talked about your vegetarianism. Um, so obviously (laughs) that's, um, not a lot. That's that's already established. Right. Um, but Yeah. yeah, how did, how did doing this work, maybe change something for you or um, what did yeah. you take away on a personal level? Mm. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. Well, this was probably the hardest book to write that I've written. I, I, it took me and I, and I get into this in that chapter that I mentioned earlier, that's forthcoming in the like existential anthropology mm-hmm. edited volume. Um, by a couple of my colleagues who were anthropologists, I really talk about that there, sort of the the crisis that I had, like I couldn't, like I was able to write about like the chapters about with Corinne and and the activist priest, you know, I I was able to do 
those earlier chapters. But but the chapters on packing plants themselves, I had a really hard time getting into because I would I would start crying. I mean, mm. I had I don't know, like maybe a little PTSD because I would remember what it was like and I would think about workers and I would think about conversations I had. Um, And yeah, it was just the, 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 um, the volume, the number of, of dead animals. And I mean, I was able to see, and I share, I was able to see, you know, the intake barn to how they're taken into the plant, which is really unusual. I don't know any other scholar who's able, been able to see the whole process. Mm. And I was on, I was in the hot box, which is called sort of little, it's almost like when you climb stairs and you're on a little platform before you get on a roller coaster. Mm. It was like that, right? I was on the stairs, which were slippery and it smelled horrible. And I was on this tiny platform with, with the, the man who was in charge of killing every single animal that day. And I was the only other, I mean, it was Raul and Edith behind me. And I thought about that image a lot. I thought about how I heard the steer coming up the conveyor belt, how I would hear them move, you know, even though we're told that they, they're calm and everything's been designed and it was designed by an autistic, you know, engineer scientist Mm. um, who's really famous, you know, all the precautions were taken so that these animals wouldn't know they're going to die. There's a part of me that's like, they know they're going to die. I know they do, you know, and just, The, that affect feeling that animality of affect, if you will, and like the smells and, um, but once, once I started writing, I couldn't stop writing those parts. And, um, you know, I cried a lot. I remember having nightmares about blood and I would wake up in a sweating because mm. I would remember, you know, just thinking about the animals and the people who just were her so injured in this industry. And, but then I, when I would think about, I don't know if I can write this book because there were moments where I really didn't know if I could finish this book. Mm. I thought, you know, this is, and people ask me all the time about social justice. And I think for me, um, the book, this book, the, the reason why I was able to finish the book was because I wanted to share these stories and to amplify the voices and to show an industry and to show the problematics of an industry but to also problematize the tropes, right? It's trying a lot sure. of you know. But I think it was, it wasn't the CEOs who I met. They weren't the reason why I finished the book. It was the workers I had met over mm. you know, seven years. And so, but yeah, it was a hard book to write. It wasn't, um, it wasn't easy. I think writing is hard, but once I got into writing it, I just, I couldn't stop. It like literally flowed. And so, yeah. So I really love doing ethnography because I love meeting people. I'm hyper. I'm kind of an anxious person. So I like getting out there and talking to people. Doing this book really reaffirmed my strengths. Like I think I'm able to really sit and listen to people and I'm able to be challenged, you know, cause people would push back um, and ask me hard questions. And, you know, my whiteness was challenged sometimes, you know, I really felt my whiteness, but also my whiteness gave me access and privilege. And so I just sat with all of this. And, and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I was able to finish the book. I'm really happy that, um, you know, it's getting attention. I'm able to talk with you today. And I hope that for folks who want to do this kind of work, that it inspires them, you know, but, and I always tell folks, you know, to just be a good listener to take your time, you know, ethnography, it's, it's like, it's like a slow cooker, you know, it it needs to take time, you know, you can't rush these things. And 
I think I need a little bit of time before the next project. I'll probably get some articles out, probably follow-ups to the book. Like I mentioned earlier, the, um, the organizing that's starting to take place yeah. in Catholic parishes. I don't know if that's so much a book. Not everything needs to be a book, mm -hmm. but I think I'd like to do like some short pieces or maybe some op-eds about um, union organizing and parishes, which takes us back, as we know, to an earlier time, which is exciting to me. Where can we look for your your work? Um, is there a centralized place? Oh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, the book that the edit, um, the chapter on the exit, sort of like my ruminations about the process, that's going to be in a volume that's going to come out with hopefully University of Toronto Press in another couple of years. And I could send that to you, you know, mm -hmm. when, yeah. when it's not under a contract yet, I'll probably try to get some op-eds out, you mm -hmm. know, maybe I'm, I'm going to aim for like maybe the Washington Post, they do some really good long op-eds, um, maybe some shorter op-eds. Um, I think the next book project, I've been thinking a lot about it. I think I really it's going to be like part memoir, part ethnography, part history. I'm from Gary, Indiana. Mm. And so I think it's going to be invoking the lyrics going back to Indiana, you know, for Michael Jackson. I want to look mm. at race, migration, and faith in Steeltown, USA. And so I really, I'm from a family of steel mill workers and teachers. And so I think be the next step in my journey of understanding my own uh, growing up in a very racist milieu where I heard mm. family members using the N-word. So there's going to be a lot of like racial reckoning in that book. Um, but I've always kind of wanted to go home and do uh, a project on where I'm from. And so it'll just kind of continue my interest and my, my commitment to unpacking what I would call the intersectionalities of migration, race, ethnicity, and religion. So I think that's yeah. the next big project. Oh, yeah. that sounds awesome. Um, yeah. my, then, uh, my family is, is actually from, uh, family from Gary, Indiana, my really? great grandfather, oh. Ended up in California from Gary, Indiana. So really? yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. What is your what is the ethnic background of of that side of the family? Um, they are. Oh goodness. Um, There's so many folks who came. Yeah. In again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, th I I I would probably say like an Irish. If yeah. I yeah. Okay. Um, Catholic. They, by the time I knew my great grandfather, he was very irreligious. Yeah, the the hardworking, the hard scrabble, yep. horse racing, yep. um, racist, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and inter yes. very interesting uh, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, probably oh, we got a very connection. We got yeah. a very connection. Yeah, there. check that out. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Well, great. Um, this has been such a such a pleasure talking to you and I'm, I'm really grateful great. for your time and yeah. Thank you. This is really, um, this is like icing on the cake, having this, I'm really having an opportunity uh, to kind of share with you and with your listeners. So thank you. It's been really, it's been really great. And that's the show. Thanks again to Dr. Christy Nabhan Warren for both of our conversations in our previous episode and this week's. I'm really grateful for her work and for her time and definitely will hope to get her on the podcast at a later date as well. 
Art for the show is by Phil Nellis. Music is by Orbach. You can support us on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs or give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. We would so much appreciate that as well. Also have a Substack, caseyhobbs.substack.com. You're going to get my latest thoughts and research on Christian views towards everything from war and peace to COVID vaccinations and everything in between. Hope you enjoy that as well. And we will speak with you soon. Now go in peace to love and serve. Mm -hmm.